During my conversation with UVA's athletic director, Carla Williams, two weeks ago, we talked a lot about the effects of NIL on college sports. Today, I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about how I think about NIL, especially as it relates to recruiting. The, the secret to our recruiting success has a lot to do with, one, the players that we recruit the prospects that we recruit, the parents of the prospects that we recruit, the all the significant people of the prospects we recruit because we just don't recruit the prospect. Uh, they have a, a number of people that they surround themselves with just to create create just some uh, some layers to them. And we, we forge relationships with all of them. But what we what we do mainly is we find out what our prospects want, what where they see themselves two years from us being in their living room to five years to 10 years. And we write down every single thing that they tell us, even if we think is a, a dream that will be unrealized. We write it down. We don't say you can't do this or that. Um, and then we hold them to their words. So when they wake up one morning, when they're here at the University of South Carolina and they don't feel like they want to go to class or they want to be late to class or they want to be unmotivated when it comes to basketball or school, because it's never un unmotivated about doing something social. So we just hold them accountable to their words and we see them through their words. And that's why I, I really believe that we're successful because of that relationship with all the people that are significant in their lives. For us, and I, I have to give credit where credit's due, our, our assistant coaches, they set it up real nice for, for me and for us. Uh, they are the ones that uh, forge these relationships with everyone. And then they, they report back to me and then I have gone into these conversations with them, the, the the prospects and their, you know, and their support system. I already have the information. I know where the conversation should start, what's the meat of the conversation, and where uh, where it goes each and every week. Uh, but our message is very clear. We're we're a tough staff to work for, and to play for, because one, again, and I think I mentioned this to to Carla Williams is that. One of our recruits, her mom told me after the official visit, I give you my daughter. I give you my daughter. And when, honestly, a black mother tells you that, she means it. She means it. She means it wholeheartedly, and she expects nothing but what we've talked about, what her daughter talked about. So, you know, my message to them is bet on yourself. My message to them is don't, by any means, disrespect your, your family's name, the South Carolina women's basketball brand. And now that players are brands themselves, your brand. Because I do think the NIL situation does help us coach a little bit better because 
It's not just performance. Uh, it is protecting your brand. And that, you know, that's the message that will, will change a little bit as the NIL movement moves forward. We actually had a, a young lady, a current player on our team, that was already up on NIL during her recruiting process, which was like three or four years ago. So they knew this was in the pi down the pipeline. And we, we told them, once it, it becomes a thing, we're going to get as much information on how to capitalize during this NIL time. I can honestly say she is actually reaping the benefits of this movement because they were way ahead of the game. And now you, you, you take, for instance, uh, uh, who we're recruiting currently. Yes, we, we talk about NIL, uh, especially the ones that are, are local and are, are from the state of South Carolina. We have the best fams, I call them fams, in the country. We have been number one in attendance for the past, I don't know, seven years and counting. Um, and if I'm a recruit, I'm seeing dollar signs because you never know who's in attendance. We get judges, we get lawyers, we get sheriffs, we get uh, a plethora of a lot of different people in different professions. And you never know who uh, is, is liking what you do and what you stand for uh, to create uh, some, you know, some, to create a monetary benefit to them. So... Yes, we have those conversations. Can I, can I help them secure NIL deals? No, because that's offhand the coaches. Um, so, but what I can do is again, I can help you find an agent, a representative to help you navigate through it. And then once you got your agent, they do a pretty good job at securing NIL deals for our players. I actually just read an article about the impact of NIL and, and how it impacts uh, black players in particular. Like, I, I do think black players are uh, female athletes in, in particular because this article was about that, um, how we aren't brand ambassadors for, for companies, um, not, not at the rate that white players and I know people are going to listen to this and they're going to think oh you know why does race have to come into it well race has to come into it because we're seeing other players from different um ethnicity benefit because I mean obviously they are good players they are high profile players um but <laughs> we got the the highest profile team as far as what we've been able to do this year and having the number one team in the country for knock on wood for the entire women's basketball season thus far. I mean, I watch, I don't see an Aaliyah Boston with sponsorships that are six figures. Now we don't talk about those things, but I'm sure if there's a six figure brand that she's sponsoring, we would see it. We would hear about it somewhere, whether it's, on commercials or social media, and I'm just not hearing that. And I do see that for, for other players, and I am not mad at all. I think the other players get as much as you can get because I'm into advancing our sport. I am. I'm into advancing our sports 
on all levels. But at the same time, I'm also for players, black players, getting um, equitable opportunities when it comes to NIL. And I can't be the spokeswoman for companies, but when you invest in women, you're going to get a pretty good rate on return. So I think it's going to be, it's fun conversation, it's uncomfortable conversation to have with these. I want women's sports to not mirror what the rest of the world looks like because we're different. We're different. We're at a place where we're in high demand and the fruits of uh, everybody's labor should be had, not just be one-sided. Five years from now, and I, I believe that we'll have a pretty good hold on how we how we navigate through it. If if I'm if I'm able to utilize it as a recruiting tool uh, in our sport, I, I certainly will. I mean, we're I'm doing it now, so meaning I can't I can only go by what our team is getting, and I can't talk about what's coming down the pipeline today. But there's something special. There are people. This, this particular company out there that's going to do something special that's never been done in in college basketball on the men or women's side. Um, so hopefully we can reveal it on the podcast at some point. It's going to be pretty special. And five years from today, I can honestly say that we're going to look back on it and say we were the first so it's going to be something that we're going to use as a recruiting tool because it's much deserved in, in this day and age with what our team has been able to do this past women's basketball season. Welcome back. I'm excited to welcome the only person in NCAA softball history to win a championship as a player and a head coach. She's UCLA softball's first All-American, national champion, and Hall of Famer, who coached the Bruins softball team for 27 years. Less than uh, how old I am. (laughs) (laughs) Retiring in 2006 as the winningest coach in D1 softball history. When I said she was a Hall of Famer, I mean she's been inducted into six Hall of Fames. I'm thrilled to welcome the legendary Sue Inquist to the podcast. Sue, thank you for joining us here at NetLife. It's great to have you, and you're you've become one of my one of my most favorite people. Oh, um, dang. First of all, seriously. thank you for having me. Seriously, like the energy. It's it's the energy. Like always. Mm-hmm. Like I've I've never. You know, I know we see each other from time to time, but I've never have seen you have a bad day. And maybe I'm not around you enough to see it, but the energy, the energy, it is um, electric. It is contagious. Um, but we we want, I want to know how, how it all began for you. Like, how did you know it was softball? You know, it's interesting. Um you know, you talk about the energy, like, I just want your listeners to know, don't don't think that it's all rainbows and unicorns. I mean, uh, there's a dark side there. So uh, we can get into that later. Uh, But for me, I am, you know, I'm a product of my, I'm I'm a daughter of a military father. My mother was a nurse. And 
I was just afforded access from a very young age. I had a brother 11 months older and a sister four years older. And I was really the Irish twin of my brother. I just am that typical story of the youngest following the older brother around. And uh, for those that have older brothers, you know there's a toughness that you have to gain to be able to hang with them. And I got involved with Diamond Sports through baseball. My brother played Little League. I had an impactful influencer at a very young age and Coach John Springman, who at that time, Don, remember, this is pre-Title IX. Girls aren't allowed to play sports. They're kind of frowned upon. There aren't any opportunities really for competitive girls sports. And Coach Springman, I used to go to every practice uh, to watch my brother's team play. And he asked me if I wanted to be the forever shagger for the San Clemente <laughs> Optimist Little League. And I thought I died and went to heaven. That I actually got to be on the field uh, during practice all during the week. So I was the forever shagger. And uh, I'll never forget the end of the first set of practice. He said, Susie gets to have her two buckets of swings because she just shagged balls for 90 minutes. And long story short, that was my introduction and the first person in my life that said, I have a special skill outside my family. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I fell in love with the sport because I fit in and I never looked back. And so it once again, baseball, when uh, I was a recipient of a Title IX, uh, Title IX happened in 72, and we're celebrating our 50th anniversary of Title IX this year. This, this year. And uh, when I was in high school, Title IX afforded me the opportunity to play boys baseball. That's how it got me to UCLA. So I'm really a diamond sports person, not just a softball person. Okay. All right. All right. So so your playing career was incredibly successful as a Bruin. You you won the school's first softball national championship title. You you held the you know the the batting record for over 20 years. What drove you to be successful? Now, I didn't know you, you know, I, know, I didn't know you could really hit that thing, Sue. <laughs> I didn't, you could, you could really hit that thing. I, I need, actually, actually, before you answer that question, I need to know the secret to hitting because I, I have to give it to our, our very own softball coach. We know, we, you know, we, we're, we're friends. Um, I know. And coach, coach, coach Beth, what, what's the secret? Yeah, and, and as you know, just like basketball, the secret is there's no secret, right? That's the bad news. I think for me, for, for certain players, I think I was one of them. I just always was so motivated by trying to get better. The idea of failing just wasn't in my DNA. I, I would never accept failure. I just really looked at it as an opportunity to get better. And, you know, sports softball is tricky, right? We have 23 sixtieths of a second to make a decision and get it around bat, trying to hit a round ball, going in different angles in different directions. And so that's why it's so difficult to be uh, a great hitter. And that's what I loved about it. I loved the fact that it was so hard. And uh, overall, Don, besides the kinetic chain, the most important thing, like most sports, is not really about, for me, it was never about confidence. It was about understanding what ready meant. I always woke up every day saying, what do I need to be ready? And to clamp onto that when it came to game time. So cool, you just you just broke it down. And that that transcends any sport. Yeah, so that's I mean, cool. I, you know, Don, I mean, I, I want our <laughs> listeners to know, I saw your swing. 
Because I know <laughs> you you kind of slide into softball's territory. I saw you going down that road. I'm like, oh, no, she did not. She's <laughs> You're just going to go step right in there and hit some fungos. I was impressed that kinetic chain, your timing, club head release, hands above the ball. You had it all. All city Philly. That's, the, that's what they used to call me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but Sue, you led UCLA to 11 national championships, right? Yeah, as a part of uh, 11, as a player, assistant coach, associate right. coach, and a head coach. Yeah, 11, 11 titles. Yeah, 11 titles, but you led. So you led as a player, you led as a coach. Like, yep. do any of them stand out? You know, like, I, I, you know, I don't have any children. So when people talk about championships, I feel like they're my children. Like, how do you pick your favorite child? I do know that there's, there's a, a special place for the first one because my freshman year, when I came to UCLA, a lot of people know UCLA as a perennial powerhouse but when i got there we were bad news bears we were a club team we were going into intercollegiate we wore the men's track team practice t-shirts were our game uniforms so we literally my freshman year uh we were just little just little orphans and by the time we were a senior our senior class uh we went into the championship unranked and went into that tournament and no one scored a run off of us and we won that title. But I think what the story that I'd like to share to the listeners was we had a head coach in Sharon Backus who really stained my brain. And it was all about this concept that the game doesn't know. The game of excellence doesn't know who's supposed to win. And when you can live that mantra with discipline, whether you're chasing or you're being chased, if you can always remember the game doesn't know, the game doesn't know who's supposed to win, that's how you break through. And our team bought into that. She says, we're gonna be doing some very fundamental things with a very, very high standard. I'll never forget the day she said this. She said, the greatest compliment I can give you as student athletes is a high standard. And at that point, we were bad news bears. I didn't even know what a standard was. And our practices were very simple, very repetitive, very boring. But after four years, we knew exactly what the game asked for, and we knew what it meant to be ready in the cooker. And it was just about clamping onto that, breaking through. Once you break through, Don, you know this. You know this as a player, you were a champion, and as a coach, you're a champion. Chasing the title seems like the hardest thing, but once you get it, the real work starts with yeah. really trying to stay focused on what it takes to be ready every day. It does. I, I You shared the story with me, and I, I, need, I need you to – to tell everyone <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. the time you threw the second place trophy in the garbage can at a tournament. Listen, listen to, I, I, you know, uh, it's one of those things where people say, you know, Sue, you, you had this nice career. Why do you always talk about that? And the reason I talk about it is it's so important for us as leaders to remain reflective and to be constantly striving to get better. And, you know, I'm retired, as you know, and I'm fascinated where, like some of my colleagues that have been in the game, they'll say, oh, I've been in the game 25 years. I don't have any regrets. I'm like, really? You have no regrets? I have like a ton of regrets. And one of them is in 2000 when we were defending champions. We were at the Hawaii tournament and we were playing. We got caught looking at the shirts in the other dugout. That's another thing. Don't look left. Don't look right. 
Go ahead and play. Be ready. Play solid defense, timely hitting. Don't get caught looking at the shirts in the other dugout because then you think, oh, I can mail it in. We're just playing that little scrawny team. Well, I didn't have my backup pitcher ready. It was my fault. Long story short, we lose the game. We get the consolation trophy. I want no part of it. I'm at a transactional part of my life as a leader, meaning also known as I'm not a very good leader because it was all about winning. And I threw the trophy in the trash can. And this was back, thank goodness, before social media. But it, it actually went on, it went viral at that time, which was uh, the wires picked it up. So every local newspaper had an opportunity to pull the article that said championship coach, sore loser, throws away trophy. And if our listeners don't believe me, just type in my last name, Enquist, <laughs> trophy and trash and watch all the noise that comes up. But it was a great lesson, Dawn, for me. It was a great lesson to recalibrate my thinking, how I led, how I managed failure recovery. And I think I became a better person and a better coach because of that embarrassing moment. <laughs> And I hate losing. I'm just a bad loser. I I don't want to sugarcoat it. I tell people all the time, I'm a horrible loser. And I would like to think if I were coaching today, it'd be better. But I'm not sure. But I know I wouldn't be throwing away trophies. (laughs) I think I think I've been in that. I've been in that uh, position before. And uh, and I I am a self uh, prescribed sore loser. Seriously, like someone called me that on social media uh uh the other day and I'm just like okay well where's the lie as he they told the truth like I can't combat that yeah. yep yep you, so, you know what I appreciate Don what you, you know what I appreciate uh about today's coaching is there's a there's such a high demand on you because you do have to answer the call regarding social media and you have to answer the call around the student athlete and who they are and their values actually blur right into your intercollegiate program and i just want to say how impressive it is that you take on the good the bad and the ugly with such a spirit and no one no one makes you cynical and I'm just really, I use you as an example a lot in, and I teach graduate school at UCLA right now, and I use you as an example that you can have fun and have super high standards at the same time. And that's a super important message that our young coaches and young leaders out there, that this idea that they're mutually exclusive, you can't have fun, your kids can't have fun and have high standards. Like, oh, well, South Carolina, it's just a party fest down there. I'm like, oh, want to pull the curtain back they've got (laughs) discipline high standards they've got all those the rigor involved but we can dress it in a little bit of the fun zone and i think you guys do a great job of that well thank you sue we appreciate that because you we know you got the you got an eye for it so we appreciate you seeing that um but but you were first in many things the first scholarship softball student athlete at ucla on the first Pan Am Games gold medal team, to name a few, do you, and I know you do, I know the answer to this, but we need it. We need our listeners to hear it. Do you consider yourself a, a trailblazer for female athletes and coaches? Well, I think what's interesting is, in reflection, I do. At the time, you're just clawing to get opportunities. So at the time, you're not really aware of the impact but in reflection, you are. And in reflection, I think what I know more than anything 
is the shoulders of the people that I stood on, the people like Sharon Backus and the Judy Hollins that forged the trail of opportunity for the student athletes at UCLA. A lot of people don't know this, but Judy Holland had a blueprint for women's athletics long before it was popular. And she said, we're going to be out of the gate first. This is right after Title IX was enacted. She said, I'll never forget this. I was sitting in the women's gym and she had a, 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 a player student athlete meeting. She says, there's a new federal law. I met with the chancellor and we've made a full-time commitment that we're going to go out of the gate first at UCLA. We're not comparing. We're not watching. We're going all in. And I'll never forget. This is what I remember. Now, remember, Don, back then I, I weighed 175. I played rugby. She was a big girl. But all I remember <laughs> was our lunches were going to be free. And we no longer had to drive our own cars to competition and that we were getting uniforms. And I remember that at the time in these micro changes, but when you look back, think about the architecture that Judy was fighting for to systematically have our university flip the script and be first out of the gate. And to be honest with you, when you look at the history of UCLA, it was a real advantage to get out of the gate first. And we know that even when it comes to equality and equity, whoever gets out of the gate first, they have the advantage. And so to me, it's been something that I've really tried to share with people throughout my life is that important that importance of giving opportunities to others. I failed to mention that you were part of the uh, 1996 Olympic staff, right, in, in Atlanta. And that Olympic game... I think it changed the landscape of, of women's sports in general. And softball made it made its Olympic debut. What what memories stand out uh, to you from the from the Atlanta Games? Well, uh, just to, to to clarify too, in the '96 Games, I was chosen to be part of the coaching staff. There were eight of us, so I wasn't on the field in Atlanta. I just want to make sure that that's clear. I was you a part were, of the you, uh, you were on staff. Yes, it, you, it, it, yeah, yeah. It's, it's eight. Yes, yeah. you, you were on staff. Yeah, I just, I just, I just want to be accurate about that. They had four people that were on the field, but there were. I, for me at the time, I was an associate head coach, and I was. We it took us four years to build our our build up to get ready for '96. And uh, the most powerful memory for me wasn't really at the Olympics. It was for the first time in our sport, which was so unique. Is all these competitive competitor coaches are working together. And to me, that was the most profound for me to be working with people like Carol Spanks and Shirley Topley and these people that we were competing against during the year. Now we're all going to work together. We're all wearing the patch. We're all wearing the American flag together. So for me, it was the process leading up to the games and then to watch us win that gold medal and set the tone for future gold medals and silver medals was uh Certainly an exciting one, but Don, as you know, softball teeters on the validity in the international family, right? Because we we were in in, in 96, 2000, 04, 08, we got out in 12, 16, and back in in 20, and now we're out in 24, and hopefully back in in 28 in LA. There's a quick little summary on the Olympic challenges of, of USA softball. I know you have your hand in campaigning for for the Olympics to be... I mean, for the for softball to be a mainstay in every Olympic Games, like what what are the conversations like 
Uh, yeah, it's, it's actually, it's pretty complicated. Um, most people don't understand, but there's actually a voting process that happens internationally. And softball just needs more global representation. We have pockets where we're strong in Australia, Canada, um, you know, Europe's getting better. But we just, in the Eastern Bloc and in the Far East, we've got Japan is strong. Uh, China's trying to make a commitment. But overall, it's been a pretty a pretty big challenge because remember, all countries vote on adding sports. So it really comes down to countries saying, well, do we have softball? Do we have facilities? Because remember, both sports, baseball and softball, they have different dimensions. So it's it's also a costly investment. And so I think that's part of the problem too. Um, we've got that going against us. The only thing that we going for us got going for us in 28 is it's in Los Angeles. It's going to be, you know, we're going to have a lot of influence there as the host to be able to add a sport. As you know, the host gets to add a sport. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Also, yep. so the host gets to add a sport. Like what other sports are, are, is softball competing for? Well, with this, the, the, well, the, the new ones were we were competing against rugby and surfing and skating and breakdancing and rock climbing, all these sports that are kind of going under like this, what they call like a demo status, mm-hmm. which means that it's not guaranteed. Like, for example, like basketball's in. You don't worry about being in every quadrennial. So um, it's 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 unfortunate because uh, I think it's going to be an ongoing ongoing challenge for us uh, as a sport internationally. I have a clip from Flamebearers, one of my favorite podcasts that I love to share with my listeners. One of the recent episodes of Flamebearers highlights Mia Claire from Madagascar. She's an Olympic alpine skier, but there's so much more to her story. Listen to a clip when she first heard she was heading to the Olympics and how proud she was to represent her country. And then I chose Madagascar. And then one year after, my dad told me that I can go to the Olympics. And I was like, no, (laughs) it's a joke. And finally, (laughs) I was at the Olympics. I, I wasn't really expecting that, but it was a dream for me. I'm really happy and really proud of my country, even if the Malagasy people don't really know about the alpine skiing world about the snow like if i go to madagascar i don't know if they will recognize me like oh you're the girl from madagascar who went to the olympics and who is racing in alpine skiing but yeah i'm still proud of my country and i really want to represent madagascar on my races on the world cups on yeah every big events in alpine skiing Mia is an incredible athlete and role model, and she's the first and only Madagasy woman to compete in the Winter Olympics. Listen to Mia's full episode on Flame Bears. I want to talk a little bit about gender equity and Title IX. Mm. Like you, you've been an expert witness in Title IX cases. What exactly does that entail? Well, just just overall, for our listeners that don't maybe know a lot about it, the, the 
The most important thing to remember about Title IX is it, it was a federally mandated law. It actually came down around education, fair opportunities for boys and girls in education. At the time, they never knew Title IX was going to run and become explosive around the athletic arena. And so for me, I was a direct beneficiary of it because it basically says this. You've got a department of high school or a, a, a recreation, anywhere where you're getting federally funded dollars, you have to provide equal opportunities for boys and girls, men and women. And that there are... Um, three main definitions of how you can gain that equality status. But at the end of the day, when you think for college, it's a reflection of how many students are the, the gender breakdown of the campus. So UCLA, if they have 51% female and 49% male, they need to be spending their dollars, their opportunities, their um, assets that reflect that percentage. And then what I do as an expert witness, I'm on the legal compliance side, is I'll go in, I work with a law firm, we go in and we'll do discoveries because we know overall in this country, a majority of our schools are out of compliance and it's very difficult to hold them accountable because we have so few law firms that have Title IX compliance directives, meaning that they are specialists in that area. So it's almost like, Dawn, everybody's speeding on the freeway, but we don't have any cops to hold them accountable, right? Mm -hmm. So um, we need more law firms to be doing pro bono work around Title IX. We need more coaches to step up and say, um, there's a discrepancy here because we have to rely on the people on the inside. We have to rely on the people on the outside. Two important groups on the outside, families that have children that are impacted by it and the media that tells the story. And we turn on that media flood floodgate. I'm telling you, we can get a lot done because there are no administrators that want to be in the glare of the media spotlight around um, gender equity and Title IX um, out of compliance. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it seems like every year there are schools that cut men's sports and people want to blame Title IX. What, what's your response to that? Yeah, it's just a fallacy. It's just that, f first of all, you have to understand there is great flexibility around the timing of how you get in compliance. Number one, there's this, it's just, a, a, it's not true that you get slapped a Title IX lawsuit and you have to be in compliance in, in a year. Literally, it takes years to get into compliance. Uh, that's number one. Number two, nowhere in Title IX law does it say you cut men's sports to gain uh, equality for women's sports. So it's just, it's a fallacy that's been built up from the other side that's trying to keep this inequity alive. The other thing we have to remember, and I've learned this firsthand in dealing with high schools and colleges that are out of compliance, these are good people at these schools. These are great educators. What problem we have is the blind bias around, well, I didn't know we were out of compliance. I just did what, what always was done. So it's that ignorance and that inability to understand when you take on a new job as an assistant athletic director, your first imperative is to look at the budget and make sure that you're in compliance with Title IX. That should be the very first thing before you even talk about safety is where is the budget when it comes to Title IX and how can we get in compliance over a fixed period of years? Because you don't have to take away opportunity. 
to get into compliance because we're not asking you as Title IX compliance people, we're not telling you to do that in a sh too short of a period of time. So for me, what happens is we know football creates that imbalance, but there are so many strategies, so many resources that allow ADs to get in compliance over a fixed period of time. So those people that are crying foul uh, regarding that is really just a hollow, it's hollow noise. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I had I had Lisa Leslie on as a guest on one of the episodes, and she pointed out that a that a big difference between being a Division One athlete and playing professional basketball was there was no Title Nine, and we're we're seeing yeah we're we're seeing the um the the soccer team the national our women's national soccer team softball like WNBA players have to go overseas to supplement their income. There's a, the list goes on and on, but when do you think Title IX is going to start raise its big voice in in the professional rankings? Ken, is there a way that that this can get done in the in the manner that is taking place on uh, on you know collegiate uh, collegiate and university uh, grounds? Yeah, so it's really unique, right? So our collegiate institutions, our high schools, elementary schools, even our cities that are getting any sort of federal funding in any way have to be in compliance. They're taken care of. The bad news is when it comes to professional sports, they're now all they're falling under the, the, the business regulation compliance. And unfortunately, there are none. And business people will tell you it's not my moral imperative to take care of women because they're business people. What's unfortunate is they don't realize the financial benefits in the long run of going out, advocating for women, getting women leaders on your board, getting women of influence in that front office to make better decisions that are gonna go ahead and serve our sports, our professional sports overall. We're very lucky as a country because we're the only country that has a federal mandate for equality for boys and girls in education and sports in elementary and college and, st and state uh, city parks and city park and rec. So on one hand, we're really, we benefit a lot as a country because you go to other countries, they don't even have that in the education system. We have a beautiful scholarship path to college program. It's not perfect, but it's sure better than anything else. If you go to other places in the world, you have a brand new appreciation for what we have when it comes to path to college. But I mean, look at California. California's, you know, if you're a business person, you're going to roll your eyes when I say this, but the businesses have made a business. It is a state law that 50% of your boards have to be female. And, and you have to have a minority on that board, 50% female or minority or both. And that's when access happens. Unfortunately, people say, well, we should be able to regulate that ourselves. Well, memo to you, dude, <laughs> it's not working. It's not working. We have less than 5% women on our, uh, in CEOs and in our board position. So it's not working. We mandate it. And that's when change occurs. Look what happened on with in athletics. I can remember I was a student athlete when we did not have a senior women's administrator position where we mandated you had to have a female executive. And it blew up over those first 10 years. It gave so many more opportunities for women to get to the C-suite in athletics. So for me, I'm a huge advocate 
to providing access even when it's mandated because that deepens the pool. When we deepen the pool, we're going to create more access. We have more access. More people have opportunities. And the quality of whatever you're building or doing or providing improves. We already know that. Science tells us that. Society tells us that. Of course, we have a lot of work to do in that area. So for me, what's hard is... If you are somebody that's interested in changing the world, you have a different vernacular than that person that wants to own the world. The business person wants to own the world. (laughs) Everything's driven by money. And this person that wants to change the world wants to provide access for everybody to reach their best selves and ultimately have opportunities to go and be the best they're capable of being, no matter what they choose. You have a clear passion for leadership and and coaching. Like... When did you know? Did you know during your playing career um, that you were that you were meant to be a coach? No, not at all. My I was going to plan on going to graduate school in respiratory therapy. I, my background's in science. I got my BS in kinesiology. I was interested in getting into respiratory therapy. And my head coach at the time, I graduated in March, and I was going to walk, graduate in June. She said, would you just help out coaching for those 10 weeks in the spring quarter at UCLA? I said, sure, I'm not going to get into coaching, but I'll, I'll help. Don, the first week... I call my mom and my dad. I was slated to go to graduate school at SC. I call my mom and the dad. Every time I, each week I call them, they'd both be on the phone. My dad, man of very few words. He was an engineer. He worked, you know, in, in electrical engineering. And my mom was a nurse and she just loved everybody. And I I remember calling saying, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to go to, to graduate school. I want to coach. And my mom says, Oh, Oh, I think that's just so wonderful. It's just going to be so great for the girls. And Sharon will love to have you. And my dad's silent. I'm like, Dad? And he says, how are you going to pay for the bills? And I said, I'm going to get, I got, I got three jobs lined up. I'm going to be a volleyball referee. I'm going to be a strength and conditioning coach. And I'm going to go ahead and work at the, the Sports Connection as an administrator. So I worked three jobs for 11 years before I could do it full time. I knew I was meant to be a coach. Mm. So knowing that it was in your heart to be a coach, like how do you, how do you get the best out of your athletes? Well, I think early on it was very easy for me because I was a wingman. I was Sharon's right-hand man. It really, for me, where the rubber hit the road is when I took the program over myself. And I was at the UCLA when Sharon laid out the blueprint, and then I – I ne- I've never had a job interview, Don. so don't ask me about uh, job interviews because I went right from being assistant to a co-head coach to a head coach. And I helped Sharon build and sustain that blueprint. And so when I took over, there was changes starting to happen, but I was very transactional. I, I was, you know, I grew up with very transactional leadership. There was a leader, put up, shut up, don't ask questions, gut it out, uh, be seen, not heard. Uh, I never doubted my parents' love for me. My father was never, never raised his voice once. He never hit me once. None of that. But a man of few words, no excuses. And he wanted me to be great at three things. He said, you are going to outwork everybody. You are going to have the best attitude in the building. And you're going to master failure recovery. You're going to be first up after failure. And so my father never was critical of anything I did unless I fell short in any of those three areas. And then there was huge disappointment. So you can imagine the day I threw away that trophy and got caught. 
everyone's like, you must have been so afraid to talk to your AD. I'm like, no, I had no problem with the AD. I didn't want to call my father <laughs> and say that I had a bad attitude in that moment. So for me today, relevant coaching methods rely around listening. What does the athlete need to reach their best self? And we as coaches have to be great listeners to what they need. And then it's our job to create the conditions and the standards for them to be their best self, and then to teach all student athletes how to master their own failure recovery because the game doesn't wait for you and your sorry self when you feel badly if you, you miss a shot or you've swung and missed on a, on a rise ball. The game doesn't wait, and when you can learn that the game is bigger than you and you're just serving the game, the game becomes really fun because you can control your effort and your attitude and your failure recovery. So uh, you have that. Is there... Is there any other advice that you would give a, a young coach? Well, I, I, I would tell a young head coach that coaching is super messy. And every single day, you got to be able to look at your coaches and go, we are a clown car today. We're in a pandemic. We are experiencing huge social justice issues in this country. And we're unearthing all of this. We are a clown car but you got to be able to look them in the eye and go, best darn clown car I'd ever want to be in. I'll put my hands on 10 and 2, and we are going to fly down this highway together all cramped into this car. And when you can tell your players that, that we're going to be great in the chaos, it makes them exhale. When the student-athlete knows that the coach can be authentic, I can remember days coming to the park and saying to the team, I just want everybody to know I'm a goat rodeo today. And so I'm going to I'm going to front load my apology for being disorganized, but I'm going to give you 100% of my 80%. Because once you can create the conditions where the athletes know it's not about faking it, it's about owning where you are and then asking your team to have your back. And when you can build that up and and have grace. I today you need two things. You need grit. So you need that sustained effort when it's hard. But you also need grace because you know what, Don, you know this. There are people on the team that are just there for the ride. <laughs> They're just there for the, like, when was the last time you came early, stayed late? You can't ask anybody to do that because that's against the rules. But we today as transformational leaders, we have to be able to say that person that's got one foot in, that's just doing the bare minimum, they've got to be able to say why. And we've got to be able to give them grace. Grace is unmerited acceptance, meaning if you go below the standard, I don't have to accept that. I don't have to accept the fact that you're below the line, but I'm going to give you unmerited acceptance because I can't kick you off the team. You're still on the team. I'm not going to get that stuck in my shoe. You're not going to be gum on my shoe. I'm going to give you grace and the clown car keeps moving because we know, Dawn, that one or two people on the team don't ruin a team. It's those one or two that impact three or four that impact three or four. Then all of a sudden you got nine people that are going ho-hum, and that's when you get tripped up. You sure do. The majority wins, for sure. Majority wins. Uh, you told me about how you used to uh, uh, divide your team into thirds. Yeah. Top I mean, little – yeah, go ahead. Yes, yeah. this is great. This is great. <laughs> this – when I learned this as a young coach, uh, the reason it helped me 
is it it builds almost a shield around you as a human. So you don't, you know, most coaches don't do it to make millions of dollars. You do it, Don, you got into coaching because you love coaching. You couldn't not care if you tried. Aren't there days where you're like, oh, I wish I could just not care. So right. Sunday I can have the day off. <laughs> well, when I heard the 33% the rule, it basically says this. There's a third of the people on your team that literally will suck the life out of you. They literally have never realized, dude, you're in a team sport. These two hours, it's not about you. They're the person that's running at the mouth. They're running commentary on what's hard, why they're tired. The court is cold. There's too many people. The sound, they are just barfers, I call them. Then you got middle third. And middle third loves the game, loves the team, loves the season in the beginning when you're undefeated. But the minute they're not starting and now you're instead of being, you know, 10 and 0 and you're now 10 and 5, they're now going, I hate my coach, I hate the school, I hate everything. They blow in the wind. And then you got top third. These are the people that just charge every day. Good days, bad days, they're charging. And I tell coaches, teach this to your team so they can own when they're bottom third. It builds awareness not to get sucked into bottom third, and it builds awareness that we are a product of how we think, speak, and act. And I ask all our players constantly, are you giving energy or taking energy those two hours at practice? Because there's no in-between. You're either sucking the air out of the gym or you're giving energy. And be tuned in as a coach that bottom thirds, we got to learn to manage them. We've got to learn to hear their path, give them grace because they're on the team. You're not kicking them off the team. But I really want to focus on the middle third. Middle third, look to the top third. Give the bottom third grace. We always hold our team accountable to the rules. But really what slows teams down aren't rules, breaking rules. It's actually standards. For me, standards are a social agreement that the team has with itself at the, co at the player level. They know, dude, we don't do that. We don't do that here. It's not a rule. It's just a standard. And when a team understands we're going to uphold those high standards as middle and top third, you don't have that bottom third suck the life out of you and hold back the progress of the team overall. Uh, I'm, I'm writing notes. I'm writing notes. Yeah. I mean, I'm learning. This, this this is pretty darn cool. I mean, this is this is great information. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, you helped develop the John Wooden Leadership Academy for student athletes at uh and coaches at UCLA. It's a two part question. Like, what's the number one thing you learned from John Wooden? Oh well, for, first of all, unpack the the number one thing I learned from Papa was. One day I was being bottom third with Papa. I'm complaining, <laughs> complaining, complaining. Because remember, bottom third, when you're a coach, bottom third comes home with you. Like you're at the dinner table and you're with your people and you're talking about bottom thirds. They're now at your dinner table, people. Like don't let bottom thirds get in your house. So I'm at <laughs> Papa's house. I'm at his apartment. It's condominium. And I'm complaining about my bottom third. Something happened. And I'm going on blah, blah, barfing at Papa. And he says, Sue? You have not learned to love the game unconditionally. And I'm going to tell you what that means. He says, with your best player or your worst player, on your best day or your worst day, you must speak the language of what greatness is. You cannot ride the roller coaster of the bottom third, middle third, bottom third, middle third. You have to stay above all of it 
and espouse what they need to do, how they need to do it, and be repetitive in that with your passion, you can't get down into their level. That toxicity will burn you out. I remember the day he told me I was an associate head coach. So it was in the late 80s that Papa told me that. And it stuck with me forever to be unconditional on our best days when we're not playing very well. You still have to stay and rise above and continue to espouse the belief of how we're going to pull out of it, how we're going to go ahead and play to our level of excellence and to be the engineer of belief. Because as a coach, our main noble job is to create belief. That's the most important thing we have to do. We have to create belief. And if we don't do that through practice, through challenges, because at the end of the day, I always said, I wanted my student athletes to say, that was the best two hours of my day. And how do we make that the best two hours of the day? High standards, having fun, and infusing belief in them. Because at the end of the day, what do you want them to say? Like, I've never heard a player say, oh, I couldn't stand my coach. She believed in me too much. (laughs) I never heard that. Early in my career, Dawn, early in my career, I was measuring gaps all about what you're not, what you're not, what you're not, what you're not. You're not there. I was measuring gaps. But later in my career, I was able to say, hey, the gap is this wide. But on Tuesday, I saw you go oppo with that drop curveball. All I'm asking you to do is dial up that image against this gal today, because I know you can project success, because at the end of the day, you want them to say, I played for a woman who believed in me before I believed in myself. See, Sue, I know I wanted our listeners to hear you, but part of the reason why I wanted to have you on this podcast is for me, selfishly. (laughs) Like, like, selfishly, I'm, I'm learning, like, we're smack in the middle of our season, and it's draining mentally, physically, for all of us, for the players, for the coaches, and you are just giving me these nuggets that I need to part way to our our team and our players. And, you know, some of them are bottom thirds, but they they got a chance. They got a chance to move up to the middle third, and this is – this is what I needed. I, I, I do need to believe in them. I, I think I said this to someone earlier today um, in that um, I, I have to get out of, outside of myself because I'm, a, I'm an old school coach that players have to really show me that they, they, that they can be productive. They have to show me, and, I, and I've been a stickler for that, but, but sometimes you got to give somebody a chance because a, a a different environment, the games, they they may have enough to uh, enough I mean, and give them an opportunity. They need that that shot of confidence, and sometimes that's in the form of putting them in a situation where they could be successful, and and it grows from there. So thank you, thank you for um, giving me the shot in the arm that I need. Uh, and we and we sit as we sit here as the number one team in the country, and and I still need that. So thank you, Sue. What is the overarching goal of the Leadership Academy that you want the athletes and coaches to take away um, when they finish? 
Well, first of all, no one can ever appreciate uh, the challenge of being number one in the country. You know, Don, the idea that no one's going to come to your pity party, right? Like, oh, poor Don Staley in South Carolina. No one's coming to the pity party. But what they don't understand is there's a zero margin for error. And as an athlete every single day, we've got to make sure that when we look at that as a gift, that the only thing they have to do every day in that gym is go for it. Because if you go for it and you leave every day and you said, I went for it, you'll never have player regrets. But where the regret comes in and it'll be gum on your shoe for the rest of your life is if you got careful or you got sloppy. If you get careful because you got to be perfect, or you got sloppy because you think you're so good, you'll have regrets. But if you go into the gym every day going, I'm just going to give 100% of what I have, and I'm going for it every day as though it is my last day, because every day is a gift. Papa used to say that every day is a gift. But the overarching theme around the Wooden Academy had to do with when I was uh, finishing up with my coaching, it bothered me that we didn't have a department-wide leadership academy. And so we went to Papa and we said, Papa, we want to name it after you. He said, that'd be great. Little did I know that the campus was negotiating with the Wooden Foundation on this million-dollar scholarship award through the business department. Here we march in. Papa, can we name it John Wooden Academy? Sure you can, as long as I can be the first speaker. Of course, Papa. And so we built out a a speaker series. Now they've got multiple events that they run under the academy. So it's a way, it's a vehicle to share his model. The pyramid of success is just, it's a personal success model is what the pyramid of success is because he felt that grades in co- in elementary school were unfair that everyone should be based on the, are they at the best they're capable of being some kids no matter how hard they try may not be good at math so the pyramid of success was really a personal success model and for us to have events around that bringing in speakers on behalf of the great tradition of of John Wooden uh, was certainly it's certainly a legacy I'm proud of uh, being a part of de- co-developing that that's great. So, Sue, a couple of more little heavier questions, and then we get on. We get into some um, some fun things that we like to do here on the on the podcast. But when the the first time I I heard you speak was at our, our women's basketball national convention, like, and usually I skip out. Usually I skip out. Seriously, like I skip out. But something brought me to this convention and the. And it, and you were the you were the speaker of the of the convention, and I'm sitting there, and I'm I'm locked in like I probably drew a few times, um, because what you were saying just resonated in in, in me as a coach and me as a person and me as a, a dream merchant for young people, and I just sat there mesmerized and, you know I'm I'm not one that. You know, I don't really like meeting new people, but when you were done, I stood in line to shake your hand. Like I I stood in line to just say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for, again, I've been very fortunate that every step of my career, I've had something or someone um, give me what I needed in in, in any given moment that I was in need. and, And you were that. Um, because I had much rather be at this, the convention in another fashion, like in the final four, participating <laughs> as a coach. Um, but something brought me there, and it was it was you and I. I just 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 remember you 
just bringing the house down. And I, I know this, this was part of your business, right? Cause you got other businesses, speaking engagements. You, you have a lot going on. So I, I wanted to just say thank you for, for, for being that for me in that moment. But, but you, you often talk to business leaders. Um, what, what's, what's your message and, and how, how similar of a message it is for those business leaders, um, and, and talking to us coaches. There is, there is a tremendous amount of, of similarities and more so now than ever before. When I was, when I was coaching, we were really in a vacuum. It was very transactional. There wasn't a lot of feedback from the student athletes. We knew exactly what we wanted. We were the know-it-alls as the coaches and, and shut up and put up today. Sports is mirroring society and corporate America more. And I see it as a positive where you as a head coach of a perennial uh, premier program, you now have the challenges of making sure that you're developing the person and the player and the competitor. And there's a lot more responsibility that comes with that, but you now are responsible for things that corporate America leaders have been responsible for for decades around, you know, employee wealth, you know, um, well-being and employee rights. And how does how does a company or a corporation embed itself into society and provide and reflect more opportunities for those that are underserved? Well, now sports, that's now a standard is if I'm a parent today, I want to know what your program is doing around gender equity. I want to know what it's doing around our, our civil engagement. I want to know how you're turning these student athletes into not just compliant. Oh, we have summer camp and everybody, people of color are invited. That doesn't count. <laughs> I'm interested in knowing, are you building advocates for change. Student athletes go down to the inner city and run a clinic at their school. Don't say everyone's invited to UCLA. How the hell are they going to get there? Right. And so I get excited about how the universities can be a model for how they can influence corporate America. So when I go into corporate America, I'm really more of a fixer. So unless I'm doing a keynote, right. So, but if I'm going to be doing a leadership summit, I'll come in and it's transformative principles. Listen first, what are, what's holding you back? I get those things, put them into buckets, create working groups, and then provide solutions around those working groups and then hold an assessment at the end. So now we solve our problems from the bottom up and our executive leaders in corporate and coaching, they're just in charge of creating the conditions for us to solve our own problems. I believe great culture is created by the student athletes. The coach is just in charge of holding the conditions for those athletes to be able to take care of their culture. Because we know now, whether it's corporate culture or it's athletic culture, that great cultures are driven by relationships and performance, corporate and athletic. And the drivers of those two areas, it's important that you know, does your team lean more towards relationship or does it lean more towards performance? Of course, everybody does both. But once a team knows, hey, we're more relationship oriented as a team, well, we know pregame dinners are important. <laughs> but then there are years, there are years where you have players on your team, they're all about performance. Dude, I couldn't care less what you ate last night. Come to Saturday rested and ready to rip out the jugular of the shirts on the other side of the court. 
Once we understand how we are motivated, then we can go ahead and have grace for one another. So if I'm, I'm, you know, I'm performance oriented. So I was that person come rested and ready. Yes, I'll go to dinner, but that's not really going to make us better on Saturday. But it does when it makes, when you make that connection with a person that wants to be connected to you. So I've got to be able to give grace in areas that I may not be interested because that's what it means to sacrifice as being a part of a team. And those people need to sacrifice as well when I want us to come early and stay late to get more swings in. And so we work together and we drop that, what I call that mental tug of war that we have with each other in culture. What is it about our culture that is working or not working? And that mental tug of war will always come down to two things, how we perform together or how we relate and build our relationships with one another. Ooh. Cool. So, Sue. And so on the consulting side, on the consulting side, for me, it's really about how can I help everybody get better? Or if they don't have the infrastructure, I can help them build that infrastructure. And so for me, that's the, I enjoy being a consultant because I enjoy coming into different infrastructures. Like I really enjoy my time. I'm working now with, with USA Volleyball and I really, really enjoy uh, being a part of their infrastructure and and the challenges that they've been uh, going through as a sport historically, so I just enjoy the diversity of experiences that I have. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a, a a random fun fact. You were I didn't I didn't know this Sue. Okay, you were a pro surf, surfer at one point. Yeah, I mean I, I know you to... surf every day. I do know you do yeah. that, but I didn't know you were a pro. At it, what was that? What was that like, Donnie? I was going to be a pro surfer, so I was going to be. I was going to get my graduate degree, respiratory therapy, and be a pro surfer. Because back in the day, the women's pro tour was June until September, and I went in. I because I I was you know I, I could hold my own. I was California State amateur champion, so I'm like, oh, I'm gonna go in there and kick everybody's butt as a professional. <laughs> And I go into the pro ranks, unranked, so I had to go through the, the qualifying, and I got my butt kicked, like literally, because I was doing it part-time, right? I wasn't on a full-time tour. And I l- realized one summer, ooh, Sue, that's not going to be your career path. You better start figuring things out. And it was fun how it all merged together with the athletic coaching and realizing I was not going to be a, a career pro surfer. But I, Donnie, I love... I love surfing. I have a passion for surfing unlike anything else because I could lose in surfing and it didn't bother me because I <laughs> loved I loved being on the ocean and I loved being with the other competitors. It was really, I just love it so much. That's that's so cool. So, so Sue, I can't let you go without having a little bit of fun. So we yeah, do this thing. It, we just put 20 seconds on the clock and you, you're just going to answer as many questions as you can. You can take more than 20 seconds because you're Sue. Okay, okay I'll break the rules. <laughs> um, favorite beach to surf? Cotton's Point, San Clemente. All right. Um, who's the best NCAA softball player of all time? Lisa Fernandez, UCLA. Hands down. Lisa, 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 Lisa. Um, <laughs> if you could have any superpower, what would it be? I would want to go back in time and meet Duke Kanemoko, great surfer, uh, and Abraham Lincoln. 
Okay, all right. That's those are cool answers. Okay, last one. One basketball player you'd love to have converted to a softball player. Hint, hint. Don Staley. <laughs> <laughs> Hands down, Don Staley. Out away. We would have won more championships too. <laughs> That's right. That's right. She got away. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sue, on this podcast, I'm talking leadership, disruptors, change makers. It's hoops. It's politics. It's pop culture. It's the net sum of life. So, before I let you go, I ask all my guests for some words of wisdom that either they received that helps guide them or that they want to pass along to others. And I know you've given us a lot, but some words of wisdom, Sue. Uh, to that young girl that feels like there's not an opportunity for her, there is. To that old veteran that you don't uh, think you can change, you can. If everybody always remembers, there are two things in this world that you can control. That's your effort and your attitude, and that's going to get you awfully far in life because those were my pillars and things have worked out pretty good, your effort and your attitude. That's awesome. Spoken very Sue-like. So thanks, Sue, for, for coming on. I really appreciate you. I love you. Um, before I let you go, do you have anything you want to promote or plug? Uh, just uh, to all those all those women out there, uh, stick together, lift each other up. Um, the only thing I want to promote is excellence, that everybody has a chance to be their best self. Don't get caught looking left or right. Um, that's the only thing I want to promote. And uh, good luck this year, Donnie. Have fun with those girls. And uh, you're on house money, right? Just yeah. be your best and let everything else take care of itself. Just you're. For people that are trying to sustain, I always say you're on house money. What I mean by that is all you have to do every day is just go for it. That's the standard you have to beat because the view, there's nobody in front of you. You're the, you're being chased. And so I watch it with both eyes. I love you to pieces, and I'll be in touch. Yep. As a, as a, who, who, who said this, Sue? Oh, who said this? Cause as you, I'm just going to, I'm just going to expound on what you just said. If you're up, then you're stuck. What rapper? Female. Oh, God. Donnie, Donnie, you you don't want me on a any of that, please. Um, and don't don't make me start rapping because it's gonna get messy real fast. <laughs> Pop culture, I am gonna be your weak link, my friend. Uh, so, <laughs> Give so, me the answer. I'll never forget. <laughs> it is uh it is uh it's not Nicki Minaj. It is Cardi B. Cardi B. Look at you. Look at you. Cardi B, Cardi B. baby. Cardi, Cardi B. B. Yes. Yes. See, I led you right oh into my. that answer. See, I led you right into the answer. Good, good teamwork. Sue, thank That's you. Right. Thank you, Sue. Love Appreciate you, buddy. you. Love you. Love you. Appreciate you. Love you too. And thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to follow NetLife with Dawn Staley on Apple Podcasts. Uh, subscribe on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. NetLife is produced by Just Women Sports. For more great sports content, go to JustWomenSports.com. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter and YouTube channel and follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And this is Dawn Staley. Signing off and look forward to uh, 
having some great conversations. <laughs>